Good to be with you on this beautiful weekend. Hope you got some time outside. What a gorgeous one it was yesterday, huh? Well, a number of great things happening here at Carney Free over the course of the next couple Sundays. One was just noted. Uh, particularly want to call attention to the Community Life Sunday, which will be uh, next week, and an easy opportunity, as David noted, to get involved in a life group. And if you don't yet have an area of community here at Carney Free, would love for you to come here next Sunday and learn more about those, as we'll have some kiosks stationed over in the cube, a uh, number of ways that you can get connected, either in a short-term group or a long-term life group. We believe every person really needs community as we, uh, as we grow into the likeness of Christ. I'm also excited, excited to share that uh, next Sunday there will be a new discipleship group, a life group though, that's starting, uh, that's specifically for newer Christians, or maybe even those who are just asking questions about Christianity. Maybe you haven't yet made that cross over the line from not being a follower of Christ to becoming a follower of Christ, and this could be a great group for you. And uh, John Fowler will be helping to provide leadership for this new believers class, new believers group, if you will. It's not so much a, a class as, as a small group to, to come together and to learn a little bit more about what we believe and why we believe it, and uh, that'll be starting here shortly as well, and will be profiled next Sunday at that community life gathering as well. Then the following Sunday, we're going to have a ministry expo here. That's on March 13th. And this is particular for finding an area of mission within the church or outside of our church walls. Over the summer, we're likely to have a broader ministry fair that profiles all of our different ministries. But this is specifically to helping all of us find an area of service, an area of mission. And we really believe here that we will grow as followers of Christ, we will grow as disciples of Christ, if we're consistently in a worship environment like this one where we learn the gospel and we learn the truth of the scriptures, and as we're consistently in a small group community of some kind, and then finally as we're consistently in some kind of place of mission, be that inside the church or outside the church, some area of mission, some area of service where we can make a difference for the cause of Christ. And so again, we'll have that expo here on uh, March 13th. Encourage you to be a part of that. It is powerful when God's people get onto mission together. It's really hard to believe for me that we're four Sundays from Easter. Didn't we just have Christmas? I mean, it just happened. <laughs> but here it is, four Sundays away, which leaves me wondering, who am I going to invite here for Easter? Or perhaps even you, who, who are you going to invite here on Easter morning as we'll have three services that morning? Got some wind outside, don't we? Maybe a, a better question even would be, uh, who is it that you can share Christ with this coming Easter? There's someone in your mind that you love and you uh, would love for them to know Christ. You'd love for them to engage in a conversation about Christ and uh, perhaps this would be the time that you begin praying about someone that you really care about that you could share the gospel of Christ with this Easter season. Of course, you can bring them here on Easter Sunday, and I'll be sure to share the gospel message with them there as well. But there's a certain power, isn't there, when one person shares the love of God with another person? I want to really challenge you on that as we head into the Easter season. Who can you think of that you might invite here on Easter Sunday who can you think of that you might be praying for to 
have an opportunity to share with them yourself as well. Well, this morning we're going to continue in our series titled All In, in which we're going to talk about our core value of the gospel. And we talked about this last Sunday, but it's such a huge topic, we really needed two Sundays to unpack what we mean by the gospel and how it makes a difference in our lives, how we're to live out the gospel on a day-in and day-out basis. And so uh, we're going to do that here, though, this morning. And if you're new here, though, this morning, well, I want to let you know that normally what I'll do is take a single passage of the Scripture and, and just try to unpack that single passage. But today's going to be a little bit different. I'm not going to direct you to any one passage. We're going to jump around through a number of different passages. and So you can kind of put your Bible away, and you'll see the verses up on the screen, and you might take notes as we go through, as we seek to understand better the gospel of Christ together. As we enter in, let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, thank you for your mercy to us. Thank you for this morning. And for your grace and the beautiful songs that we just had an opportunity to sing. We thank you, Lord, that you are holy. And yet you invite us to fellowship with you. You invite us to sing to you and to know you. And so that's our desire today, Lord, to know you a little bit better. We ask, God, that through these scriptures and through this teaching, we would have a greater knowledge of the holiness of God. A greater knowledge of our Tremendous need for God. Father, I ask for your help this morning as this is a more theological message. And this is a message that speaks to our tremendous need for the cross of Christ to save us from our sins and give us relationship with God, give us union with the one who alone is God. And this is a challenging message for me. And I'm sure it'll be a challenging message for many in this room. And so I ask for your help, God, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. That you would center us on the word of God and you would teach us. We avail ourselves to you this morning, asking you to be front and center in our minds. Thank you, Lord, for your truth. Teach us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if we were to ask a group of Christians, say this group of Christians, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? What kind of answers would we get? This is talk in church time. What's the reason? To die for our sins, I heard. Others are secretly saying, I think he's trying to bait me into something right now. I'm not going to speak up right now, but Becky, I'm glad you did. You're right, to die for our sins. That's the main reason that Jesus went to the cross, to die for our sins. But if we were to probe a little bit more deeply, to press a little bit more deeply on that question, why did God need to send his son to earth to die for our sins in order that we might be forgiven? I mean, doesn't it seem a little bit extreme that he had to give his one and only son for us? Couldn't he have taken a less extreme measure than that in order to bring us to God? Have you ever thought that question before? Many have thought that question. I certainly have thought that question. It seems a little bit extreme. Moreover, what difference does all of that make for us today? 
that he was willing to go to the cross some 2,000 years ago. And if God is God, if God is all-powerful, couldn't he be just forgiven us without sending his son? You know, it's been said to understand the antidote, you must first understand the poison. Let me say that again. To understand the antidote, you must first understand the poison. So what is the poison that resulted in God going all the way to the cross for us? I want to take a few moments, though, this morning to help us understand the poison and God's response to that poison, such that we understand, perhaps at a deeper level, just what Christ accomplished through the cross and why it was necessary for God the Father to send God the Son all the way to that gut-wrenching, excruciating death on the cross. The poison is our sin, yours and mine, and the poison is great. It's really popular today to say that sins aren't that bad, especially our own, right? Your sins might be quite bad, but mine aren't too bad. That's really popular today to kind of rationalize our own behavior or to compare our behavior to other people's behaviors such that it doesn't feel like sin is that bad. And we've almost lost a nomenclature for sin in our culture, a lexicon, a language for sin has kind of been dismissed in our culture. We don't talk about it much anymore. But the Bible is pretty clear on this. Jeremiah 17, 9, for example, says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. And so it's the deceitfulness of the heart that would say, no, my sin isn't that bad. It's the deceitfulness of the heart to rationalize sin. I love the way C.S. Lewis once put it. He said, my best motives under the best possible day on the best of possible circumstances are at best mixed. My best motives are at best mixed. It's true for all of us in this room. Now, I know that I've never murdered a person, but I know at the same time I've committed violent and capricious thoughts, murderous thoughts. I've never committed adultery, but I've committed lustful thoughts. I'm not known as a boastful person, but I... I know some of the pride that exists within here, some of the selfishness and some of the envy that exists right in here. And the bad news is that that pride is sin, that selfishness is the poison that would separate us from God. This is the bad news that is part of the good news. And the Bible reveals that God is simply flat out angry with sin, be it in our thoughts or our words or our deeds. Let me share a few examples from the scriptures. Colossians 3, 5, and 6 says, Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, whether it be sexual immorality or impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Greed, which is idolatry. How about that? Put to death these, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God has spoken against these behaviors that many people just wink at today. Or you think about the context of Romans 1, very, very famous passage in which it says uh, that the people exchanged the truth of God for a lie. 
And people exchange natural relationships with one another for unnatural sexual relationships. Man with a man, woman with a woman. And they exchanged uh, worship of the one true God for worship of God's creation. And then one of the most chilling statements in all of Scripture in Romans 1 is this. God gave them over to their depraved minds. He gave them over to their depraved minds. But God wasn't willing to leave us there in the midst of our depraved minds. And so he, he sent his son to come for us. And Romans 2 goes on to say, even in the midst of this fact that he gave them over to their depraved minds, Romans 2 says, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? How about that? In the midst of our depraved minds, God is still wanting to lead us to repentance. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Nobody wants to hear about this today, do they? I don't really want to share about this today. But this is the bad news, which is interwoven with the good news. To understand the beauty of the antidote, we have to first understand the poison that would separate us from the goodness of God. And we don't want to hear about the anger of God. And some would even say, okay, well, that's all... Um, fine, that, that's kind of God the Father stuff, but we have God the Son now. Well, did Jesus ever get angry? How about Jesus in the, the temples, turning over the money changers' tables because they were using the temple of God for their own greedy profit? Was God angry there? Was Jesus himself angry there? We see this righteous, clear anger in the Scriptures from God the Father and from God the Son. Now, why is it so hard for us to think of this as God becoming angry? It's because the only thing that is not permitted in the public square today is the thought that there are some things that God actually gets upset about, including things in us that God actually gets upset about. You see, culturally today, discussion of God's Unlimited kindness and grace and mercy and love is certainly welcome. You can broadcast that. But the moment you talk about God being angry about certain behaviors, well, you better just shut up and keep that on the reservation. And personally, when we speak of human anger, we usually speak of it as sinful. What's the color that you associate with human anger? Red. He got red hot. And we know that's nasty. And when we think of human anger, experientially, we know that in general, it's not a good quality. In general, when we think of human anger, we think of someone flying off the handle. Someone who cannot control herself. Someone who gets red hot. But God's anger is never arbitrary. It's never out of control. All of God's anger is righteous. And his moral perfections simply demand that he respond a certain way in the face of evil. His anger is judicial. 
As a judge would administer justice fairly, so is God's anger. As a good father would administer discipline to his sons or daughters wisely and strongly, so is God's anger. God doesn't excuse sins, none of them. He doesn't look the other way from our sin. He doesn't wink at our sin. In his perfect character, he says, they need to be paid for. Otherwise, please hear me clearly, if our sins are not paid for, they separate us from God. They separate us from God both today, temporally speaking, and tomorrow, and for eternity. And we don't want to hear that, but that is the bad news which leads to the good news. A few months ago, I, uh, my family and I were invited over to dinner at a dear family's home here in the church, and we had a really nice meal with them, and as the dinner concluded, uh, I backed my car out of their driveway, and I heard a big clunk. And then I turned around, and I saw their mailbox in the street. <laughs> yes, that happened here in Kearney. Lest any of you be tempted to invite me and my family over for dinner, you are now forewarned. <laughs> and uh, this was a big column of a brick mailbox, I might add, that was sitting in the center of the street now. And the gentleman was very nice, very kind, but here's the deal. As kind as he was, one way or another, that mailbox had to be paid for. And it was going to come either out of my insurance, my car insurance, or out of his house insurance, or out of my pocket. But one way or another, that mailbox that was now sitting in the middle of the street had to be paid for. D do you see? Do you see what I'm talking about here? One way or another, our bricks have to be paid for. They can't just sit there. And so it is, well, with our sin. And you might say, well, he might have chosen out of his benevolence to pay for that all by himself. So is he then like God, Adrian? But I would ask this question. If I backed up my car and did it again, would he pay for it a second time? And then again? Because in one way or another, that's what I do to God just about every day. In one way or another, I'm quite sure that in thought, word, or deed, I am falling short of God's standards just about every day. And this is the whole purpose of the Old Testament sacrifice system. This repeated sacrifices of a lamb over and over and over again because of repeated sins over and over and over again that were an offense to a righteous and just God. And so they had to be paid for. And so, God sent his son, once for all time, to atone for all sins, to bring about his justice and his righteous anger on the hands and the feet and on the back of his son during those three very dark days on Calvary. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, 1 Peter 2 says, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, as Isaiah promised some 700 years before the time of Christ, by his wounds you have been healed. 
This is the antidote to the poison. To understand the antidote, we must first understand the poison. And the poison is so great that it would send Christ to the cross. But the antidote is the gospel itself. The antidote to our sin, the antidote to our separation from God is the cross of Christ. It's the gospel. This is the antidote to our shame. It's the antidote to our debt. It's the antidote to our sense of worthlessness and our pain and our sense of not belonging. It's the antidote to our fears of eternal death. It is the cross of Christ. That is the answer to our issue. Once again, as I noted last week, that God in his absolute pristine justice and holiness simply cannot look at our sin. He cannot wink at it. But God in his love was unwilling to lose those that he has created in his image. And so God in his grace sends his son to die a vicarious death on our behalf to be a substitute for us. And God in his love God in his grace, God in his justice chose to look away from his own son for three dark days on Calvary in order that he would never have to look away from you or me. You see, God is not just in spite of his love. He is just because he is loving. He is not loving in spite of his justice. He is loving because he is just. Love minus justice would be less than love. We have this poison called sin, but the antidote is the gospel. Now, I know that's a lot of theology in a short time, but it is so critical for us. And so I want to give a visual to kind of hopefully help summarize it. And I I deeply desire for our church to understand the gospel, to be able to personally internalize it, and to have a level of confidence in being able to share it with others. A level of confidence in being able to uh, give it to your kids and give it to other neighbors and remind yourself of it when you forget the problem and God's solution, as we all do. And, and people will ask you from time to time, well, what do you mean that you became a Christian? I, I, not too long ago, so someone asked me that. I mean, weren't you born in America, Adrian? Weren't you always a Christian? No, I wasn't. I became a Christian. And we all did. We all became a Christian at some point. And, and what, what do you mean by the gospel that you have to receive that? So I'd like to give you a little tool such that you can uh, teach yourself this and be able to, in a very simple way, explain it to others. It's kind of a napkin drawing, if you will, that you could write out on a napkin while you're having lunch with someone who was asking the question, well, what do you mean that you became a Christian? How does someone become a Christian? So follow along with me. And please take notes as I want you to get this. We need to get this. As a church family, well, we need to get this. You might have other tools to explain the gospel, and by all means, yeah, you can use those as well. This is one very, very simple one. It starts with this up on the screen. And what I'll do is just, people, is just take people through a few different passages in the Bible. This is called the Roman Road. And the Roman Road begins with Romans 3.23, which says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, there's this great chasm between us and God, which cannot be erased by our good activities. And so what we all try to do with this great chasm between us and God is we have a number of steps that we try to get over to God, a number of ladders that we try to climb up. And these ladders are different for different people, but for some of us it would be 
I come from a good family and I raised a good family. Or I've been very successful in my career. Or I had a great education and I've lived a really, really good life. And all of these things would give me a chance to measure up to you. And if you look on the back of your outline, you'll see a number of steps. None of those steps actually get us to God. And so you move over to Romans 6.23. You go to Romans 3.23, and then you go to Romans 6.23. And Romans 6.23 says simply, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I, I would just ask someone, though, that I'm sharing the gospel with, what, what is a wage? It's something that you earn. And the wage of our sin is, it's death. But what is the free gift of God? It's nothing less than eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's our problem. And here in the very same verse is the solution to our problem. The gift of God is eternal life, both for today and for all of eternity in Christ Jesus. I read a book by author Robert Weber in which he described a story in which he was uh, traveling from San Francisco to Los Angeles, got on a short plane, and as he got on the plane, he opened up a Christian book, and a gentleman of East Asian descent was sitting next to him, and he saw this Christian book, and he, he says to Robert Weber, uh, I see you're reading a Christian book. Are you a religious man? And Weber said, yeah, of sorts. And they engage in conversation, going back and forth, learning about one another's faiths. And um, Robert Weber asked this gentleman from East Asia, would you mind describing me with a one-liner? Uh, what captures the essence of your faith? Can you give me a one-liner that captures the essence of your faith? And the gentleman said, yes, I'd be happy to. We are all part of the problem, and we are all part of the solution. And Weber said, oh, that's great. That's, that's very helpful for me to understand that from your perspective. And they went back and forth, continued to have conversation about that. And, and then Weber says, uh, can I give you a one-liner that describes the essence of my faith? He said, yes, I'd be happy to have that. And he said, we're all part of the problem, but there is only one man who is the solution. His name is Jesus Christ. It's not that we're all part of the problem and we're all part of the solution. It's that we're all part of the problem and that problem is a pit and we can't get out of that pit by ourselves. There's no way that we can climb up a ladder to reach up to God. The only solution to our problem is Jesus Christ. John 3, 16 and 17, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And then verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He sent his son in the world to save the world through him in order that we might have relationship with the living God. You know, early on in my preaching, uh, nine or ten years ago, there was a missionary in our church. And uh, he, he enjoyed my preaching, but one day he came to me right after the sermon and he said, Adrian, I have a little question for you and a little bit of feedback for you. Uh-oh. He said, Adrian, you have a lot of good content, but you tend to dump the truck up and just unload it like I kind of am on you all today. And he said, Adrian, yes, but how? How, Adrian? And that was one of the 
the greatest statements that, that someone's ever given me, one of the most helpful pieces of feedback that I've ever gotten a message, Adrian, how? What, what do you do with this? And, and what you do with this is this next thing. You go from Romans 6.23 to, to 10.9 and 10. Romans 10.9 and 10 says simply this. 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And this is the how for all of us. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is the answer to our problem. God would invite us to eternal life through Christ, and all we must do is receive that by faith. This is the how for us. I want you to imagine that perhaps someone asks you, what is the gospel? How does someone become a Christian? And you just take them through these three passages, Romans 3.23, 6.23, 10.9 and 10. You draw this little diagram for them, and you help them envision this is the how. By grace, through faith, you also can become a follower of Christ and you will be accepted for all eternity by God. And then, you see an arrow here. You put, might put this arrow up on uh, your outline as well. We walk in newness of life because we're now rooted and established in the, uh, the power of the cross. And across every domain of life, this results in character change for us. You just show someone Ephesians 2, 8 and 10. Again, I go through this entire sequence of passages, and you can do this as well, then Ephesians 2, 8 and 10. Would you read this out loud with me? Please join me. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Saved by grace, through faith, saved from all of our sins, but for good works. So again, what difference does it make? This is the starting point. This is the starting point of the gospel. From this point forward, we are different. Saved by grace, through faith, for good works. The upshot of all of this is that this week we get to begin living our lives from the gospel, out of Christ. We can take great risks for the cause of Christ because we've been saved by him. Th think about the difference that this makes. Well, when you know that everything you have is from God and you can't work yourself up the ladder to get to him, but he has given it all to us, it results in this. We're able to live a life of receiving rather than taking because he's already given us all that we need. We're able to live a life of sacrificing rather than looking for others to give to us. We're able to live a life of serving rather than looking to be served. We're able to worship God rather than seeking the applause of men. Again, this is the difference between living life from our acceptance versus living life for our acceptance. We live from the fact that we are accepted by God, from the fact of our forgiveness, from the fact of God's love for us, and that grants us different levels of confidence and joy than we ever thought possible. It really is good news.
The response for us is simple. We bring the antidote wherever we go. The gospel's good news. It's not good religion. And so we want to bring the good news everywhere we go. First, we memorize this. We internalize it into our souls, and then we ask God for an opportunity to share it with someone this Easter. Would you do that? Would you ask God for an opportunity to share this good news with someone this coming Easter even? We don't have to be weird about this. We simply look for those opportunities that God might bring to us. We ask God for those chances. I love the way St. Francis of Assisi put it. He said, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. Now, oftentimes words are necessary. But sometimes the way we preach the gospel is by a life of gentleness and listening and patience and prayer for people who do not yet know him. But then we are always ready when God will give an opportunity for us to communicate what we believe and why we believe it. We want this to be so familiar to us that it can just kind of roll off the tongue in the most winsome and natural and beautiful way that other people are wanting to hear more about it because we are non-argumentative about it. And we desire deeply that this would be so central to the way we operate as a church, that this wouldn't be words that we use. This would be the core value, the modus operandi of how we relate to one another. That we would name sin, sin. That we would call a spade a spade. But yet we would still say any sin can be forgiven. And all of us have found level ground at the foot of the cross. Amen? Every single one of us has level ground at the foot of the cross. And so there is no hierarchy or ranking game between your sin and my sin. Because if that was the case, I'd be gone from here pretty soon. And so would you. And our church would get really, really small overnight. There is no ranking game. We don't do any of that. We recognize that we are all in process. And so we consistently go to the cross to receive our forgiveness, and we operate out of that forgiveness toward one another, love toward one another, because we all are in the same process. I really hope that we as a church are excited about the gospel. This is the main thing. Again, this is heavy theology that I've given today, but this is the main thing. This is the central tenet of our faith. This is the foundation on top of which all of our faith rests. It is the gospel that we begin with, and from there we move forward. I fear that sometimes we lose excitement for this because we're perhaps not quite like that woman that we looked at last week in that gospel story of the prostitute who comes to Jesus. And what does Jesus say about her? She loved much because she knew she had been forgiven much. I pray that we would be amongst the people who remind ourselves on a regular basis just how much we've been forgiven. And that would well up for us into this deep abiding love for God because we know uh, my list of failures is great. We all suffer from amnesia, do we not? Some of us more than others. We all suffer from amnesia. And the natural operating procedure for all of us is to go into fix-it mode, especially my friends in the Midwest. But we cannot fix this. 
We need God to fix this poison. And so we go from natural fix-it mode to gospel mode in which we say, I am utterly without hope in the world, utterly without hope for all of eternity outside of the cross of Christ. So I return to you, Lord Jesus, and I ask for your forgiveness. I ask God that I would embrace once again, that you would embrace well once again, that though the poison is great, the gospel of Christ is greater still. For that we can give thanks and praise him today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you for giving your son for us. We are no longer under the wrath of God. Indeed, we have now been reconciled to God by faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. The price for our peace has been paid. I wonder if you might say that out loud. Would you join me in saying that? The price for my peace has been paid. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you freely took on sin in order to give us your righteousness and to give us a right standing with God the Father. We are now sons and daughters of God, sons and daughters of the King, forgiven by God the Father, given the righteousness of God through the cross of Christ. Father, I pray for any in here who are under the heavy burden of their own sin. There are some here who are under a heavy burden today and feel condemned, and they've embraced Christ as Lord, and so I pray, God, that you would let them know by the wounds of Christ, they've already been healed, and that these friends would walk in newness of life today. They would walk in the reality that they are healed by the living God. I pray for anyone else in attendance today who doesn't know this basic news, that their sin has separated them from God, that the wages of sin is death, but that by faith, the gift of God would be theirs through Christ Jesus, eternal life through Christ Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you would prick consciences and you would reinforce this truth to us that we can't get to God on our own but we need your forgiveness and you have offered it. And Father, if there are any in that place today, I pray, Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus, though, that you would convict them of sin and convict them of the truth that they can believe in their hearts and confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, that God rose him from the dead and that through his victory, they also can have victory today. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for paying the price for our sin. In your mighty name we ask, amen.